Bernstein. Yes, ma'am. I was wrong. I beg your pardon? The truth is I don't have a, a, a card that says Mr. Hunt to any material. Uh-huh. Uh, I, uh, I don't remember getting material for... I do remember getting material for somebody, but it wasn't for Mr. Hunt. Right. The truth is, I didn't have any requests at all for Mr. Hunt. Oh. Uh, the truth is, I don't know any Mr. Hunt. This, yes, this was all one conversation? Yeah. He says, uh, first of all, I think I got a bunch of books on Hunt. She comes back five seconds later. She says, I don't even know a Mr. Hunt, and it's obvious that someone got it. That's not enough proof. I mean, if there was just a piece of paper that said that Hunt was taking out books on Kennedy, which I have a quick, like a, I don't know, a library. Hunt also something. took out books from the Library of Congress, but what's more important is that somebody got to her in that space of five. somebody got to her? Because she said that Hunt had a lot, there was a lot of books that Hunt checked out. And then she comes back and says, I don't even know. That's the actor Dustin Hoffman playing the journalist, Carl Bernstein, arguing with his Washington Post colleague, Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, in the classic film, All the President's Men. The movie, of course, tells the story of one of the great moments in American journalism, the dogged pursuit by Bernstein and Woodward of the Watergate story, leading ultimately to the resignation of then-President Richard Nixon. But years before Watergate brought Bernstein well-deserved fame and fortune, he sharpened his journalistic chops as a copyboy, dictationist, and cub reporter for the Washington Star, the Capitol's afternoon newspaper that, until it shut down 41 years ago, was the Post's fierce crosstown rival. Now Bernstein has written a memoir about his formative days at the Star called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. It recounts how a young kid who just barely graduated high school and never made it through college learned how to conduct interviews and craft stories that matter while getting a front row seat at some of the biggest events of his time, from the civil rights movement to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. We'll talk to Bernstein about his book and what lessons it has for journalists today on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isagoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I think any reporter such as us uh, who's spent years in the business has got to love this book by Bernstein. It really is an ode to the romance of journalism, the fun of getting a scoop, of being there for a big story, of interviewing people who tell you surprising things. It's something we all learn when we get into the business, but Bernstein really has written quite evocatively about something that, you know, I'm afraid to say, you know, may be uh, gone or at least something we're losing as the news media evolves. Yeah, it really is. Uh, evocative is, is the right word. Um, he really evokes the the romance of journalism in that in that kind of uh, golden age. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the memoir, I mean, this is Carl Bernstein, right, who, along with Bob Woodward, broke the Watergate story wide open and brought down an American president. That's never happened before. And yet, when he decides to write his memoir, he doesn't write about Watergate. 
right? Barely. He doesn't, he doesn't mention it in the book. Doesn't even mention it in, in, in the book. Yeah. He doesn't and, even and, get to the 1970s. <laughs> doesn't even get to the right. <laughs> yeah. But what he writes about, it, it is in, in some ways, it, it's a coming of age story. It's a story about all of the things that he learned from all of these great journalists, wonderful characters, by the way, that put him in a position to eventually break the Watergate story. And they're still spectacularly talented reporters out there, some of them who work with us, but um, none of them get the same kind of training, kind of immersive training in, in that kind of journalism in the same way um, anymore. We do everything online today, you know, knocking on doors, you know, what, what yeah. the kind of thing that Bernstein did, street reporting, uh, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, we are losing, unfortunately. I once actually, in the last, I don't know, two, three years ago, I think I sent one of our reporters to go knock on Fiona Hill's door, you know, one of the witnesses in the Mueller investigation, the national security. Actually, she was a, w- a witness in the impeachment proceeding. In I don't the impeachment, know right. In, in, and in the impeachment. I think she threatened. To, <laughs> yes. I think she threatened. I think she threatened to call the police <laughs> because, you know, journalists don't do that anymore. Now it looks like you're stalking someone as opposed to trying to get at the truth. The other thing is, I mean, thrilling. I mean, the, the kind of the adrenaline in a big thriving newsroom, which which we all remember. And he tells a story uh, about, on a, I think, his first day at the Washington Star as a copy boy walking into the newsroom. And in those days, they, there were the wire service machines, the AP, the UPI machine. And when there was a big story, the bells would ring. And if it was a huge story, an urgent or a flash, it would be five bells or eight bells. I can't remember which. And on his first day, the bells are ringing. I think it was a coup in the Congo or something like that. And I feel like we, the book was so interesting to me because I feel like I was sort of on the like the very tail end of that. When I my first day on the job at The Washington Post as a copy boy, I was in high school still. And I was taken up to the newsroom, which I knew well because my dad had worked there. But I walked in the newsroom and I started hearing bells and I didn't know what they were at first. And then I realized it was the wire service bells. There was pandemonium in the news in the newsroom. And the news was that Anwar Sadat had just been assassinated, which was a huge story. I mean, tectonic shifts, you know, after that event that, you know, you could even argue led to eventually 9-11 and, yeah, and uh, like of, one of the guys of who they, bin Laden. One of the guys they arrested was Ayman Zawahiri, right? That's right. <laughs> you know. that, exactly. But you could not help but get swept up in that excitement and that sense of importance and mission. And I think, yeah, I think that is a lot of that really is lost. But fundamentally, you know, we all work with reporters who go out there and, you know, try to get, as as Bernstein puts it uh, and Woodward puts it, the best obtainable version of the truth. Hey, yeah. Victoria, you were actually a reporter once before, reporter. You, before you uh, <laughs> found more respectable profession. Before law school. Right. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was just thinking I, I had a very similar experience of walking into the newsroom with the it was still the AP machines which were like they were like giant aliens sitting in the middle of the room they were enormous um and the bells going off and i was thinking today i suppose the modern day equivalent of it is how fast a tweet of yours gets uh, retweeted or liked <laughs> the it's the modern day version of a uh, of, of four bell or an eight bell story from the ap 
and, and which which newsroom was this that this you was the, were? This the New into? Orleans Times Picayune. Great newspaper. A great, yeah. a great newspaper. A great newspaper. Kept publishing through Hurricane Katrina and still, uh, but like many other newspapers, has uh, has almost entirely ceased physical publication. Um, has gone online, has essentially been consolidated with a series of other newspapers, and is also, like many newspapers today, largely owned by a slightly philanthropic business people who bought it to save it. And that's the modern-day version of the, uh, of the news business, I think. Of course, the Washington Star is no longer with, with us, hasn't been for four decades now. And um, there are a lot of communities that don't even have any newspapers today. Washington, of course, still has the Washington Post. But you lose something, you lose a lot when you lose the competition. I think that was uh, very clear after the uh, the store closed. And while the Post still has the national competition with, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Network News, and local news, and this is a phenomenon, you know, across the country, we are losing the reportorial edge that holds public officials and institutions accountable and um you know, that's something we'll definitely want to talk to Carl about. Last thing I'll say, I just want to say on a, on a personal note, having grown up um, in, uh, in Washington, is it's a wonderful portrait uh, of that city, you know, which obviously is, you know, the most important city in the world in a lot of ways with, you know, all of these powerful people and important issues. Uh, but there was also... It was also a town that that was it was a small town that had this that, that had this kind of intimate feel that had you know real people um, and real places. I mean, he talks about you know Shoals Cafeteria and Woody's, all of these names uh, from my childhood. It had you know terrible injustices as well, which he doesn't sugarcoat. It was a Jim Crow town, uh, but it was real. It was gritty and newspapers. One of the things that we've lost is news organizations that are really rooted in real places with real people that kind of um, is the, the, the sort of blood, the sort of bloodline of, of so much newspaper work in the first place. Okay, we got a lot to talk to Carl Bernstein about, so let's get to it. We are now joined by Carl Bernstein, famed reporter and author of the new memoir, Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Carl, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be here. It's also, this, this is the first time I've done, I, I think, a podcast or anything else with somebody who's beaten me on some stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we I don't know that we want to get too far into that, but maybe we will. Well, it's true. Uh, all right. Well, look, here, I mean, first of all, congrats on the book. It's a great read and obviously means a lot to some of us, like myself, who's a Washington Star alum. This memoir is an account of your early career at the Washington Star when you first became a journalist. And it means a lot to somebody like Clydeman, who, like you, grew up in Washington, native of our capital city. By the way, I delivered the Star, <laughs> even though my dad worked at the Post. So I, it, was, it was an act of rebellion at age, no, at age 10. You know, but I also delivered the star from a little I know. red wagon when, yep. when I was about 11. <laughs> well, 12. Started you out. So here's the, the part of 
the book that I love and uh, I love to think about, and I want to get your take. By your own account, as a young man, you were kind of a fuck-up. You barely graduated from high school. You got arrested a couple of times. You never made it through college. You flunked out of the University of Maryland. And then within little more than a decade, you're one of the most famous journalists in America. And there are a lot of ways one can sort of process and think about that. I've got my own ways, but I want to get your take on how you went from your, you know, somewhat checkered early days to your storied career. Well, I think this book explains an awful lot of it. What, what is this book? It is about this kid who you just described. I had one foot in the pool hall, one foot in the juvenile court, one foot in the classroom, but only a couple inches in, in the classroom, so it doesn't quite count as a foot who at age 16, directionless, gets the greatest seat in the country. At a moment in our history in this country, it's the beginning of the civil rights movement. It's Jack Kennedy being elected. It's the Kennedy assassination. It's the beginning of the anti-war movement because Vietnam is becoming a great, great issue. So I'm there for all of it. And what the book is, it's not about the old man, you know this because you read it, it's not the old man looking back. It's told in the voice of this kid and from his point of view about the time that he, he leaves the star, say, after my five years there. So what is the book about? How did I get, as you put it, and I'll let you describe whatever the famous part of it is or, or whatever because of, of Watergate. How did one, this kid, get from there to there. And if you read the book, you see all of the things that I'm learning and the joy of being a newspaper man, even if I'm only a 16-year-old wannabe newspaper man, you see it in this book. What, what is it that stands out in all the president's men? And you can see the link, you tell me, between this book and all the president's men. It's almost like a prequel, but there is nothing about water. There is nothing in the book after 1965, except a, a, a little epilogue. So what happened was this kid got the greatest seat in the country and got the greatest education that a kid could have. What was that education? It was being on the streets. It was going out of the office, learning about knocking on doors at night, learning about how you make sources, learning about how you treat your sources with respect, regardless of what they may have done or what they're telling you, learning everything that you, Michael, and I know about how to be a good reporter. And in an environment, and you know this from your time at the Washington Star, in this magnificent environment with the greatest reporters and editors in the country, now, the star had some troubles, to say the least, by the time you were there. But when I was there, it was better newspaper than the Washington Post. It was the, quote, conservative paper in terms of its editorial policies. The Post was the liberal paper. But we were the better paper. And one of the things we did with the greatest esprit I have ever seen in a newsroom, we took joy in beating the Washington Post day after day after day. 
and we were an afternoon paper. And there's a scene opening the book, practically, my first day that I ever went to the Washington Star for an interview with the production manager, who you probably knew, Rudy Kaufman, who was actually a member of the own, owning family of the star. And he didn't want to hire me. He took one look at me and, and I was, you know, I was 16 years old and I had on my cream colored suit from No Label Louis downtown. And I was freckled and about five foot three. And, and he thought that, that I was about to graduate from high school, which I wasn't, I was still in the 11th grade. I was going into my senior year. And he, he said, boy, I thought, I thought you were gonna graduate high school. And I said that, that I was, and it was clear to me I was, he thought I was too young looking, too short, that I maybe, so he said to me, come back after you graduate and, and then ask, ask me if you wanna have a job. And I, of course, that was not what I wanted to hear. I was really thinking, if I can get hired at this place, maybe my life is going to change and maybe I'm not going to be in the pool hall all the time. I'm not going to be in the juvenile court or whatever. And uh, he then led me into the newsroom. I had gone into his office through a back door into his office from a corridor. And he then led me on my way out of not getting the job into this newsroom. And it was the most stunning moment of my life and still might be the most stunning moment of my life. There was this commotion, the most purposeful commotion I have ever seen. Noise, typewriters clacking, clinging, chinging, the wire room with the noise, the click, clack, 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 clack of the, of the wire machines bringing in news from all over the world. People hollering copy, plumes of smoke, <laughs> enveloping everybody, nobody talking quietly, shouting at each other, copy at the top of their lungs, as if these people were on the most urgent errands in the nation. And in fact, maybe they were. Yeah, yeah. And, and they knew what they were doing. They knew there was something so important about what they were doing. And yet they didn't carry it uh, on their sleeve in a way that they ran over people or thought themselves just so special that they were above everything. They, they even had a humility about themselves. But what a group of people and what they were doing. And so as this man, Rudy Kaufman, who maybe you, you probably knew, led me down the middle aisle with toward the city desk, national desk, state desk, and on either side of me, this first look at the newsroom, the reporter's desks and the reporters typing away. He took me up toward the front of the newsroom and a copy boy came with a dolly full of newspapers and Kaufman grabbed one of them. I could feel the rumble of the presses underneath my feet. And Kaufman grabbed one of the papers from this dolly and handed it to me. And it was still warm from the presses downstairs. And I could see around me, they were making this thing. And underneath, they were printing this thing at that very moment. And I said to myself, I want to be a newspaper man. And that was it. As you describe it, it's almost cinematic. I'm thinking of the cinematic. front page. It's a His Girl Friday. And also, sort of poignantly, it's my favorite, something. My favorite movie about reporting in journalism, incidentally, is My Girl Friday. 
his his girl Friday. His girl Friday. His, his right. girl Friday, right. Russell. Right, right. And look, that's something we are all missing today. I mean, post-COVID, we're all working from home. There is no newsroom. And we'll talk, you know, in a minute about, you know, the larger trends that are not good for our uh, profession and our industry. But just to sort of button all the point I started out with, I mean, you know, what I love about your story is it's a reminder one doesn't have to go to fancy Ivy League schools like one of our podcast hosts did to be <laughs> a, uh, a great journalist in America. That's not what it's about. It's about the search for getting the story, getting it right, getting it first. Right. And one of the reasons that this kid is so lucky is I learned about getting the story, getting it right, getting it first from these amazing teachers, the greatest reporters of the day. You know, you can run them off the list, including Haynes Johnson, including Mary McGrory, including David Broder, whose dictation I took from Dallas. <laughs> Two priests walked out of Dallas Memorial Parkland Hospital at 1.10 p.m. today and announced the president is dead, period, paragraph. My hands were shaking so, so much that I misspelled hospital. But really, what happened there about was that at a time when we still had in this country the greatest meritocracy in the history of the earth, which we no longer have, this kid was able to get this job and then thrive at it. And it's just the time and I was the youngest copy boy about four years at least, and I became the youngest reporter by five or six years when, when I was 19, and they let me be a reporter in the summers. And that couldn't happen today. And at the star at the time, and the subtext of, of the book is, of course, my struggle, as it were, in, in school, particularly uh, in college, which I, the only reason I stayed in college at all, really, although I was always flunking out and finally got thrown out for having too many parking tickets. Then they let me back in, parking illegally on a faculty lot, and then they let me back in, and uh, eventually I flunked out. But I was really stayed in, in, in the University of Maryland to avoid the draft. It's nothing I'm terribly proud of, and I eventually did go into the National Guard and went to basic training and all that. But the struggle, because... All the new reporters coming to the star had college degrees. The last reporter before they made me at Summers a reporter who had not had a college degree was, was four years earlier with Tom Diamond, who was my housemate. He had never graduated from college. He was a great reporter. But by and large, all of these Ivy Leaguers started coming in at the Washington Post, nothing but college graduates, particularly Ivy Leaguers, the New York Times, the same thing. And I think that the, the business itself paid for that because I think that there is and has been too much influence by Ivy-educated college graduates in the news business. I really do. I, I believe it <laughs> because I think not enough young reporters since the days, and this is not about nostalgia. This book actually is not about nostalgia in the sense it's really a link between journalism today, between then and the Watergate reporting, between what's the most important thing we do 
it's the best obtainable version of the truth to use that phrase that Woodward and I use so often. It goes back to a phrase we use at the star, the complexity of the truth. What is it about? Perseverance, knocking on doors, common sense, listening to people with respect, not running away with your notebook or your microphone after they give you a good quote as if your job is to manufacture controversy rather than to get to the deeper truth and keep reporting day after day after day, story after story after story as the truth keeps emerging. Being and growing up on the streets, not just in an Ivy League institution, I think is a big help. And, and perhaps it's a prejudice that I, that I have, but, but I think it's, a, it's an openness and an experience that is very different because what goes on in this country? It happens in the streets and alleyways and towns, and it does not happen just. Look, I, I, I'd like to go back to school at this age. And, and learn. Well, we let me need break, let me Victoria, break. our Harvard grad co-host, <laughs> to You're rebut Carl on this point. <laughs> <Go> for <laughs> it, well, yeah. and, and not to uh, not not to try to uh, put a halo around anyone who graduated from an Ivy League, but I want I want to push back maybe or ask a, a question about kind of two things that you said. I want to kind of push back or ask a, kind of a combined question. Uh, so for many people, particularly people of color and women, having that Ivy League degree was a crucial way of breaking into the business. It gave them a, a kind of an additional level of credentials that let women and people of color break in. And you mentioned that, that it was a, a great meritocracy in the 1960s when you were at the Star. I think maybe women and African-American and Latino reporters who were trying to break into the business would push back at you on whether or not it really was such a, a, a meritocracy. I agree with you. Let me, let me say, I agree you completely. This was not a meritocracy for people of color in this country. It still isn't a meritocracy, not nearly enough for people of color. In terms of women, one of the interesting things about, about the star is that there were a fair number of great women reporters and editors, and three Pulitzer winners who were women there. Mary McGreary, Mary Lou Werner, who covered uh, massive resistance to desegregation in Virginia. Miriam Ottenberg, great investigative reporter. Three Pulitzer women, prize-winning women. But your point is well taken, as well as, look, I think it's great to have Ivy League educated reporters in a mix. In a mix. But, right. they, but, there should be I, a quota the, on them. Let's put a quota on them. Right? Right. Exactly. But the yeah. point I'm making is, of all things, the people who are excluded from our newsrooms today are people who have grown up on the streets. That's the point I'm making. Yes, there's room for, for every kind of person in the newsroom. What is the one credential that is not recognized? growing up on the streets and not having a degree. So, Carl, one of the things that's so wonderful about Chasing History is it is peopled with just the most extraordinary characters. And the people, I mean, maybe that is the magic. Maybe that is the special sauce that made a place like the Star so wonderful. Some of them are truly Runyon-esque characters. Others are elegant and erudite and, you know, immensely talented. I, I want to start with one in particular, and that is the city editor. Sid Epstein, 
It was striking to me that your dream was to become the city editor of the Washington Star. It was almost as if the editor-in-chief didn't exist. I mean, you mentioned him, but just kind of glancingly. Why was the city editor the, the top of the heap at the Star? And tell us about Sid Epstein. Well, Sid Epstein, to begin with, was the opposite uh, of an ink-stained wretch, though he too was a college dropout. He had gone to the same segregated high school in Washington uh, as my mother had, because it, 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 it was Jim Crow Washington, even while I was at the Star in uh, a Jim Crow town. I went to the same neighborhood that David lives in now. I'm sorry, that Michael lives in now. The grammar school that I went to up the street from Michael's house was segregated, legally segregated in the nation's capital. So we can talk about that some more. But, but Sid Epstein was also a product of Washington, but he had this elegance. He wore, he had an account, bought most of his clothes downtown at Lewis and Thomas Salt's, this very elegant haberdashery, to use a extinct word. And he wore these sherbet-colored shirts with his monogram, his monogrammed initials on them, and he had a perfect rep tie and wingtip shoes and a crease in his pants and, uh, and perfectly tailored suits that he would take his jacket off, sit down in his chair at the city desk, roll up his sleeves. His desk was always clear, except for the telephone, a pencil that he rolled back and forth, and a spike for the stories he edited and kept a copy of, and he would put it onto the spike. And one of the first things I did in my first weeks there is I would take stories off the spike and read them and learn how he edited and what a good story was. Even though the, edit, the reporters complained about his editing, it was unerring. He made those stories perfect. He had been a great rewrite man. And he had a way of commanding his troops, as it were. Look, I'm blessed by having the two greatest editors you could have in your lifetime, Sid Epstein and Ben Bradley, if you can imagine it. And what, one of the things they shared in, in common, certainly Ben did in his early years at the Post, was they hovered above the proceedings. They really weren't one of the guys or one of the girls. They were a presence apart. And there was a remove that they had, but especially Sid, from the people that were under them. There was a kind of, they were elevated and you knew that they were elevated, that you were not quite in their league. And but what Sid did, and I'd been there two weeks and there was a terrible thing happened. There, there was an electrocution of two kids. It's described in the book, in a swimming pool on Georgia Avenue near Howard University. And the squawk box, the, the Police radio on the city desk went off that there was a possible electrocution and then one fatality, it said. And Sid Epstein, you could see him. He didn't yell. He never yelled. The whole time I was at the Star, I never heard him raise his voice. He would get red in the face when he was mad. But on this occasion, he started summoning people, reporters to the city desk very quietly. He'd call out their name. He'd call out Moser. Come here. Sat there with Jim Moser, the leg man. Said, okay, you go to Banneker. You go to the swimming pool. 
Then he would, almost like he was hailing a cab, he would get one reporter after another, bring them up to the desk, say, you go here, you go here. He called the copy boys and said, get back there really quickly to the morgue, to the library. I want every clip about electrocutions in swimming pools. I want to know everything about that neighborhood. I want every clipping we have, take them and give them to Jerry O'Leary Jr., the rewrite man, so he can start writing. All of this done with perfect calm. And I described the wildness of the, the newsroom just on an ordinary deadline. Imagine what happens when every reporter on the local staff, 10, 12, 14 reporters, go into motion on this story. And yet in the middle of this chaos, but it's purposeful chaos, is Sid Epstein utterly calm, like a general in the army, like a good general. The troops are in the trenches, but the good general, this man is commanding the battlefield. And he's doing it with, in Sid's case, even with a kind of elegance and a kind of a touch of an orchestra conductor. Mike, Michael, you've seen him. He was there at the very end uh, when I started. Yeah, I, He was the editor of the paper, actually. Um, for briefly, started. but then, uh, no, you know, then Time Magazine bought it and they brought right. in this guy, Murray Gart, well, who had was, none of the him. journalistic uh, blood in his, uh, none of the, the classic newspaper blood that you describe. Let me tell a story about Sid that did also illustrate something about, about what I was able to do at age 16 because of Sid Epstein, but also about what, what a newspaper was about in some ways. Uh, one of the things that I did as a copy boy was I would run proofs from the desk up to the composing room upstairs where all the stories were set in type and there were linotype machines like huge looms in, in, in a textile mill. And I, one of the things that a good editor could do and Sid could do it would be to read type upside down because the type in a newspaper, each page was set in a kind of a rectangular it's called a chase, but it really, really was a fence on all four sides to hold the type together. And a good editor would be able to read that type upside down and backwards, because if you had to deal with a mistake that was on the proof that I was bringing up there, that an editor had marked the mistake, you had to know where the type was to help the composing room, the printer there, where it was, and you'd point to it or whatever. So I learned to read upside down with inside of, you know, six, eight weeks there and backwards. And I thought myself, I thought I was really clever to know how to read upside down and backwards. And so I was up there with a page proof and I was next to this big guy who was the composing room foreman and next to Sid Epstein, who was making up the local page, looking at, at the page in hot type. And I saw the mistake that was on the piece of paper that I was holding that needed to be corrected. And I put my finger on the piece of type, reading it upside down and backwards. And all of a sudden, this huge guy who was the composing room for my Aloysius E. Baker, took his ham hock of an arm, took it and started to push all of that type onto the floor and onto the wingtip shoes of Sid Epstein, who I could see Sid's face getting redder and redder. And suddenly there was no local page. It was all on the floor. Sid said to me, kid, go downstairs. 
I went downstairs. I didn't know what had happened, but I had a feeling I had done something wrong. And he came down about 20 minutes later, red-faced as could be. And he said, Ken, in my office. And, and, and up till then, I knew him really mainly from getting his coffee and order of grits in a Dixie cup when I'd get his breakfast in the morning because I'd be working in the wire room. And he'd say, hey, kid, go upstairs and get my breakfast. It was always the same grits in a Dixie cup, despite the elegant shirt and everything else. And also, up there in the composing room, these guys with inks, ink-stained smocks, and there would Sid be in this sherbet-colored <laughs> shirt, and now the wingtip shoes with all of this type falling on it. And uh, he came downstairs and said, kid, in my office. And I went into his office with him. And he said, kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a reporter. He says, why do you think you can be a reporter? I said, well, one, you know, I've already been covering these civic association meetings that the copy boys are able to cover. We get $7.50 a night to go cover a neighborhood association meeting. And there's always been a lot of secrets around me. And I've always tried to get to the bottom of the secrets. And he said, look, kid, you got to make me a promise. I said, what's that? He said, you got to promise me that as long as you are in the newspaper business, you will never again touch a piece of hot type because that is in the sphere of the international typographical union, not in the sphere that you and I are in down here making up the words. And it turned you out that learned the your typographical limits. union yeah. had earned as much money for its members as re journeyman reporters had. And it was a great union. But Sid Epstein then pulled out these pieces of paper with all of the assignments that he had made, and you back to him as the commander, the battlefield commander, with a map of downtown Washington, all of the assignments he had made for the inauguration of Jack Kennedy as president of the United States, which was going to happen in about a week. And he took the map, and he said, see this here? It's 4th and Pennsylvania Avenue. You're going to cover the inauguration of the President of the United States. You're going to stand at 4th and Pennsylvania. I get, I get emotional talking about it. <laughs> whoa, whoa. You're going to go to 4th and Pennsylvania Avenue, and you're going to report on the crowd. You're going to call in what you see to Herman Shaden, the rewrite man, everything you see about the crowd, the parade. Don't try to write anything. <laughs> Don't get fancy, just <laughs> what you see. And I went to the inauguration of Jack Kennedy in that blizzard the day before the inauguration. There was this huge blizzard. And that's exactly what I did. Because Sid Epstein took this 16-year-old kid and put him on the street at the inauguration. And he and Looney Werner, who I've mentioned before, the great reporter who had covered desegregation, in, in Virginia, massive resistance to it. All of these editors, she was then the state editor, no longer was reporting. All of these editors did what Sid Epstein had done. They sent me on these assignments, every kind of assignment. I want to hear about some of these assignments because you were- Had a bird's eye view, bird's eye view for some of, pretty of, of historic such extraordinary history. Uh, but I do moments. have to say, I've got to say, that story about you touching the type really hit home with me. Believe it or not, about 20 years later, when the Washington Post and every other newspaper had gone from hot type to cold type, I was a copy boy at the Washington Post, and I had to go 
it was downstairs. I think you had to go upstairs to the composing room. Right. I think I had to go down to the fourth floor. That's right. That's from where the fifth it was floor, uh, to pick up page proofs. And um, one day I was there waiting. They would Xerox them off of the original, and I was waiting for the Xeroxes. I saw the the live page, and I picked it up. And there was a woman there, a, a printer. They called them printers. That's right. Who they her name was? They called her Fat Pat. She was about as wide as she was short. And she saw me and she reared back and she punched me. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. And one of my printer friends who I had gotten to know pretty well intervened and he explained to me that we were not allowed to touch the live pages, that that was a union, that was a rule between, it was negotiated between labor and management. And so some rules cannot be broken. Some rules but, cannot be, be right. broken. But, but let's can, hear about your experience I, yeah, as a leg man. That's what I want to. Right, a great right. Story. I wow. want to look. The, what, what leapt out at me, Carl, is like you know you're a copy boy, you're a dictationist, you know you're a cub reporter, but you're you've got a front row seat at some pretty historic moments in American political life. And this is long before Watergate. Uh, you're there for JFK's press conference where the Bay of Pigs has just uh, exploded. Well, in his I face. was a copy boy for that right. because I was there to dictate a text of Kennedy's press conference back to the newsroom. Right. And, and as a result, I went to most of Kennedy's press conferences to do that. So I, mean, I got to see him. There's also a story in the book. I've been there a week. Speaking of, you know, copy boy is an errand boy, among other things. And somebody on the desk said, or it was a head copy boy, Phil Kelly said, go out to Burning Tree. Ike is playing golf out there, the Burning Tree Country Club. And, and this was just before the election of Don Kennedy, of Nixon Kennedy election and uh, go out to Burning Tree. We got a photographer, Paul Schmick, out there and bring back the film that, that he's shooting of Eisenhower playing golf. So I get out to Burning Tree and, and I've got a Evening Star credential. I flash it at the head caddy and tell him I want, I want to go out to, to find our photographer who's out there taking pictures of the president of the United States. He says, sure, I'll take you out there. Uh, imagine that happening today. I get out there and 12 feet away from me is the president of the United States sinking putts on a putting green. And with Paul Smith, the photographer, another 12 feet away and just one Secret Service man. And I've got a reporter's notebook with me. And even though I know I'm not going to write anything, I see that Ike has brown spots on his hands. And, you know, he was old. He was the oldest president in history up until now. And uh, and. I wrote it down in my notebook, and then I got the, got the cab back with, with Paul Schmick's roll of film. But the first couple of weeks I was there, I was 12 feet from the president of the United States, first president of the United States I, I'd ever seen. Actually, my mother took me at the age of a year to uh, watch FDR's funeral, or she held me up, so she told me. But So there were all these amazing things. But what you're referring to, Michael, I, one example... I very early, you know, I covered a lot of civil rights. And, and that's really, if I was not going to be the, the city editor of the Washington Post when I grew up, the Washington Star when I grew up, I wanted to cover civil rights. And I, and I knew I was going to be a reporter before I'd ever be the city editor. And I wanted to cover civil rights. And very early on, I was sent to National Airport, now Reagan Airport, a woman named Rita Schwerner 
was arriving at the airport and she was coming to Washington to go see Lyndon Johnson, the president of the United States, shortly after Kennedy's assassination, to urge that the search be intensified in Mississippi for her husband named Mickey Schwerner and two other civil rights workers, Goodman, Schwerner, one other, and they were missing. Turner, Schwaney, and, Gov and, and uh, Goodwin. And they were missing because they had gone down to Mississippi from the north to register black voters in Mississippi. And at that moment, she was this small woman. She was only a year or two older than, than I, and I followed her around through the day. She went to the Justice Department to meet with the Deputy Attorney General, then to the White House to meet with Lyndon Johnson to urge more people who looked for her husband because the FBI had been very reluctant to enlarge the search. So I met Rita Schwerner at the National Airport, went to the Justice Department with her, and she was there to urge that more troops be used to find her husband and these two other civil rights workers in Mississippi. And, and of course, their bodies were found two days later under a levee in Mississippi, shot to death and buried under the levee in a horrible, horrible. And at the time, there were church burnings in the South, in the Deep South, every few days. There were murders, there were lynchings. And one of the things I say in, in the book, it was at that moment I realized, and I was not the one that said it, it was actually Haynes Johnson, I think, that first said it to me. The truth is not neutral. The truth is not neutral. And, and, and then I started, I've always thought about that because the best obtainable version of the truth partly is about what we decide is news, reporters and editors, but it's not about neutrality. Yes, it's about fairness. It's not about on the one hand this and the other hand that and 50-50 down the middle, you give each side their argument. Let, let's look at this for a minute. What the hell is the other side of shooting somebody or lynching somebody and putting them under a levee in Mississippi? There aren't two sides to that story. It's not neutral. Suppose I gave 50% of the story of that to members of the Ku Klux Klan spouting off why those people should be put under the levee. Is that, is that really neutral or what, what is that? Should that be neutral? 50%, let's take an extreme example, a bank robber. We've got a bank robber goes into the bank, sticks a gun in the teller's face and says, give me all the money you got, put it in this bag. He does it. There's a videotape bro, recording all of this. He runs out of the bank. He goes to Hagerstown, Maryland, 60 miles up the road from D.C., stays there with his sister and his cousins, and they're all in this house, and he's eventually arrested. And he says, oh, no, I got an alibi. I've been out here for the last month. Anybody here will tell you. I've been, I've been here for a month. My sister will attest to it. My, her kids will attest to it. My lawyer is going to tell you the same thing. I've got to videotape. I'm going to give 50% to his alibi as opposed to 90% of the story that's on the videotape that I know is truthful. That's where one on the one hand this and the other hand that has gotten us, and this myth about objectivity in reporting has burdened us. This, I, the truth is not neutral. 
that, that what we owe our sources, our readers, our viewers, is absolute faithfulness to context, to the facts, to the reporting of making sure we have the whole story. But 50-50? No. Yeah. Well, this gets into larger issues such as of today. today. How to, do, how to cover the Trump, Trump phenomenon. Yeah. Well, the book, that that little thing about neutrality. And you know, it resonates to Trump. And that's one of the surprising things that happened to me while I was writing this book. I would write in the voice of this kid from 1960 to 65, and the book never goes past 65. And yet I could see the resonances. One to Watergate, the direct connection to Watergate and what I was learning back then, and to the Trump presidency and what was going on in the country. One of the last things in the, in the book that I do is describe reporting in 1965 on the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which I reported on, the passage of the Voting Rights Act by Republicans and Democrats on both sides determined that there would be a Voting Rights Act so especially Black people could vote because they did away with the poll tax, it did away with the impediments to Black people voting in this country. And what happened in the Senate of the United States the other day? That legislation to ensure the same thing the Voting Rights Act did in 65 was voted down by the Republican Party. What is the basic platform of the Republic Party and methodology of their trying to win in the era of the big lie? Voter suppression. Straight from what was happening in that Voting Rights Act of 65 till today. But the danger when we get away from trying to be neutral is we can be perceived as partisans, as we can be see, we can be perceived as taking one side over the other, and we lose our credibility with a big chunk of the public if we're perceived that way. And I think that's that's the danger in the formulation you've just uh, described. And, now, and I, I'm going to disagree that? with you because the formulation I've described is our responsibility to go to source after source after source and report on the truth. So we started reporting, and, and I remember the first time I did this, early in the Trump presidency, I said on the air, President of the United States, Donald Trump is a serial liar. And I took a deep breath and I said, that's not me speaking as a commentator. That's me as a reporter. I have talked to 15, 20, 25 Republicans in the House and Senate who are deeply disturbed by Donald Trump's serial lying. It was repertorially demonstrative. It sounded pejorative. And I had to point out, and I mean, I was taken aback by what I said and where the facts and context had taken me, but it was right. It wasn't neutral. It was actually the best obtainable version of the truth. So what happened in the Trump presidency, perhaps, that solidified in those who support Trump and even independents who moved over toward Trump, this picture of the press, perhaps, as being prejudiced somehow against Donald Trump? I'd say that the reporting on Trump presidency by 10, 12 news organizations covering Trump especially White House reporters, probably the greatest reporting on a president of the United States in my lifetime, because they did the work, and that includes books as well. 
And so what happens when there is this perception of being unfair, even when what we are reporting is truthful? That's what, and so let's look at the accusation about being untruthful or prejudiced about Donald Trump. And let's look at the reporting on the, the Biden White House. Let's look at story after story about what Biden did in Afghanistan let's, and, and how critical those stories appear. Let's look. Well, well at, are you taking issue with the uh, trying to hold Biden accountable for what happened no, in Afghanistan? What I'm saying is that the rap is untrue. The rap is untrue. What in both cases, it's the best obtainable version of the truth. And indeed, reporting on Biden screwing up in a major way in Afghanistan. Look at the stories about Donald Trump and COVID and the stories in the last three weeks about Joe Biden and COVID and the failure of the federal government under Joe Biden to get the necessary supplies to people in this country. What I'm saying is we're never going to escape that rap. Look at Watergate. We were told what happened in Watergate with the press and the president of the United States. The president tried to make our conduct, Bob Woodward, myself, Ben Bradley, Catherine Graham, publisher of the Washington Post, trying to make our conduct in Watergate for months and months, months and months, the issue, not the cover, not the conduct of the president and those around him. That's what the rap is. We're going to come back to some of these issues before we let you go. But I have to ask you about a story you tell in the book. I just thought it was fascinating and, and revealing. And it actually goes back to Sid Epstein. So you, you got to cover the, uh, the March on Washington in 1963. You had earlier described Sid Epstein, I think, as a commander of, of his troops. In the book, you said that he was the field marshal who was coordinating the coverage of the March on Washington, an incredibly elaborate battle plan that he had, and just an, an enormous amount of resources, 60 reporters, a helicopter, everything else that went into the, covering that story. You know, we talked about you having a front row to history, but there is a sense in which sometimes you can be too close. And what was striking about the story that you tell is that the plan went off, you say, like clockwork. But at the end of the day, the coverage was flawed. And I thought this was just stunning. Martin Luther King's speech, the I have a dream speech, the most famous speech he ever made, wasn't even mentioned in the lead story of the paper that day. It wasn't in Mary McGrory's accompanying column. How do you or explain Haynes, that? Or Haynes Johnson, who, who was one of the greatest reporters ever and had written a groundbreaking series in the Washington Star, 14 parts called The Negro in Washington. When I had first gone to the paper, somehow that had passed by them. But I had heard it on television by then in the office, because I'd gone back to the office by the time that King spoke and uh, was taking dictation, actually. I sure as hell heard it. And, and even then, I, I didn't understand why it wasn't in those stories. And what that chapter is about, in fact, is how television can do some things better than, than newspapers did. And Carl, wasn't that also the beginning of the end, in some ways, of a paper like, an afternoon paper like the Washington Star? Because television, the evening news, was, yes. was real competition for afternoon newspapers. Look, the story of the demise of the Star uh, is, is complicated, and I'll talk about that in a second. 
But indeed, afternoon newspapers increasingly, in the age of television, they started to lose a lot of their readership. They also, their readership moves to the suburbs, a lot of it from cities. And to get the trucks out to the suburbs, you know, we had five editions a day. The first one at 11 a.m. at the start. The last one was called the Stock Sports Final. And that was because uh, it would have the closing stocks and the results of the baseball games in, in the last edition, which, which was meant to be sold on newsstands downtown at 4.30 in the afternoon, 5 o'clock, 5.30, when people were going home. When they still played day games, baseball still had day games, right? <laughs> right. Another so, era. But, but the death of the star was not just because of television and just because of that. It had to do with an absolutely fatal decision that had been made by the star's owners in 1954. And at that time, there was another paper in Washington called the Times-Herald. And the Times-Herald had 10 editions a day and a huge circulation. It was not a great paper by any means, but it had a huge circulation, tons of comics, and it was put up for sale. And the Washington Post bought it for a song. And suddenly, the Washington Post had twice the circulation of the Evening Star. It had a masthead that said, the Washington Post and Times Herald. And, it, and then over the next few years, the Times Herald would get smaller and smaller and smaller in the logo at the top, and then it, it disappeared. But it picked up the advertising as well. And suddenly the star, which going back to the Lincoln presidency, had been the dominant paper in Washington in most regards. And it had this huge revenue compared to the Washington Post. Its revenue has suddenly become half of that of the Washington Post. And also it had fewer comic pages. The Post had picked them up from the Times Herald. And what had happened was Phil Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post then, it had the sense to bid and buy on that Times Herald newspaper. The Washington Star management, the owners of the paper in their arrogance, thinking they could go on forever dominating news in Washington, did not even bid on the Times Herald. That's the turning point. I was there for the death of the Washington Star. Well, cons- you cons- should talk for- about that. I-, I will talk about that in a moment, but I just want to make a couple of points. First of all, on the Martin Luther King story and the failure to get the I Have a Dream speech. It was inexplicable the, to me. Yeah, well, inexplicable. Yeah, here's my take on that, and I want to get yours, which is that one of the occupational hazards of what we do is when we go into a story, we think we know what the story is before we get there. And we start writing the lead in our head, that's right? That's, right? That's, and, and then as a result, you miss what the what happens that is absolutely more important. Right. Yeah. And there is in this here book, yeah. it says, it says one of the things I learned was very early that our preconceived notion of a story almost never turns out to be the same as the story. And my experience, you tell me, Michael, (laughs) it has never turned out to be what my preconceived notion of. There's always some complexity. The best stories are always not what you think they are. It's what you discover in the course of reporting. Look look at all the president's men in the first chapter of all the president's men. When I say I thought in those first couple of days that this was going to go to the CIA, not to the Nixon White House. That was my preconceived notion till 
Woodward and I started doing the shoe leather and started learning something about these, these burglars and their connections were to the White House. I got one more substantive question about your civil rights reporting, and then we'll let uh, Victoria uh, jump in, and then I'm going to talk about my experience at the Star, and we can swap some stories. First, on the civil rights thing, two figures who pop up in your book uh, in surprising ways is one, Stokely Carmichael, the radical activist uh, who I didn't realize you encountered in your coverage of civil rights issues in Washington. And then also, I want you to tell the story about somebody on the other side of the civil rights divide. You land an exclusive ham radio interview with Barry Goldwater on the day he's nominated for president. Um, so I want you to tell just a little bit about the two of your experiences with These the two of them. Two, yeah. That's the other thing. The book, you know, is, it is in part a story. Of, it's, a, it's about tales. And the, these are two really amazing tales. So let's start with Stokely Carmichael. And I was, I was a copy boy. I was 16 still, maybe 17, I think 16. And one of the things we did at the Star is, is that we were able as copy boys, because Sid Epstein thought the copy boys and dictationists needed more experience reporting before they could become reporters. And so he said, you cover citizens neighborhood association meetings in Washington, we could pay you $7.50 a night, and you go to these meetings and cover them. And so we did. And I went to, and there were, incidentally, the, the associations were segregated. There were citizens associations where white residents in the neighborhood and civic associations, which were the black residents, often of the same neighborhood. And so I went to the citizens association neighborhood and there was a, a, a big debate over what was actually in part a racial issue. And, and at this event were Stokely Carmichael and another man named Julius Hobson, both of them, and Walter Fauntroy also. Fauntroy became Dr. King's representative in Washington and became a great source for me. Stokely Carmichael was then a student at Howard University, but a few months later would begin uh, leading the first Freedom Rides going down to Mississippi. So after the meeting, I was introduced to them. I went up to them because of something they had said at the meeting. And the first thing Stokely Carmichael said to me is, why are you here? So well, what, what do you mean? And he said, because the star has no black reporters. And we didn't. And the Washington Post had also had a white reporter at the meeting who had already gone back because of the post deadline. But the Post had by then four black reporters to its great, great credit. And but thereafter, Stokely Carmichael gave me his phone number. And thereafter, I was able to call him uh, when I was working on civil rights stories. But the other person there was a man named Julius Hobson. And Hobson became a great local civil rights leader and actually became a member of the DC City Council, I believe, at, at one point. But he said something to me because he also became very active in the demonstrations that were taking place on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, which was as segregated and vicious as anywhere in America. And he said to me, Julius Hobson, Maryland is the South. Maryland is not a border state, it's the South. And the Eastern shore of Maryland is Mississippi. And I always remembered that when I covered 
the tear gas and the refusal to accept anti-discrimination legislation by those people fighting for uh, against civil rights on the eastern shore of Maryland. So that's how I met Stokely Carmichael, and he did become a source very early on. Uh, he seemed to be no longer angry that I was a white reporter. <laughs> and, and and Barry Goldwater, your well, Barry exclusive. Goldwater is a, yeah. is an amazing story. Goldwater had gone out to the 1964 nominating convention in 64. It was going to nominate him as the president of the United States for a nominee to be president by the Republican Party. And I read in the paper, Goldwater is a fascinating man in, in so many regards. And I, and I read in the paper that on the way out to the convention, he had not only flown been co-piloted the plane, the private plane that he was going out to San Francisco in, but he had also had his ham radio equipment with him to take to the convention, and he had used it during the flight and dropped a wire out the window on the plane, and he was going to play with his ham radio while he was waiting to be nominated to be president of the United States. I thought, you know, it's an interesting story. I think, what if I were to interview Goldwater from Washington by ham radio? So I called the press secretary of Goldwater out there in San Francisco and said, I'd like to interview Senator Goldwater by ham radio. He said, that's a great idea. And uh, so so I said, let's do it tomorrow. Well, tomorrow happened to be the day he was going to be nominated that night for president of the United States. And I found this ham radio operator in Arlington, Virginia, and he worked with the people out there in San Francisco. And we set up this interviewed by ham radio. I got down to the basement of this guy's house in Arlington and we started and Goldwater got on the ham radio and said, this is Zulu, Carrie, Kilowatt, Roger, Jasper. <laughs> and I said back to him, well, well, this is King, Roger, Sam, boy. <laughs> and we then proceeded to have this kind of technical discussion about ham radios. And then I said, I said, Senator Goldwater, does it look like you're going to win the nomination? And he said, yeah, I've got it sewn up. We lost a few votes today. And he right went back right to <laughs> ham radio to talk about Zulu Kilowatt. And he says, I'm operating a so-and-so rig, and I've got the window open here, and I've got a 40-foot line dropping out the window of the, of the Mark Hopkins Hotel. And then I said, well, can we talk a little more about what's going to happen with your nomination? And he would say, yeah, but I really don't know. Here's Zulu Kilowatt. And, and this went on for half an hour. And you and, land and on then, the front page yeah, the day the of Sid, Goldwater's Sid nomination. It, yeah. Sid Epstein thought I was crazy when I proposed it to him. And, and I, his face got red. And I took, and then I took the story up to him. And he was like speechless. And it, it was, a, but let, let me tell you the sequel. I want to tell you the sequel to the story. In Watergate, Woodward and I were writing the final days about Nixon's final days. And so we went to see Barry Goldwater in his apartment. And he told us, he, first of all, he remembered me from the, from the Zulu kilowatt experience when I reminded him of it. He, he kind of said, oh, that was really fun. And started talking about Zulu kilowatt. And, and then he pulled out his diary. And this really goes to what we're talking about today to some extent. He pulled out his diary about the end of the Nixon presidency. And he told us how he had that, and, and what happened at the end of the Nixon presidency? What really ended the Nixon presidency? The bravery of courageous Republicans to bolt from the party 
and vote for the first the impeachment and the articles of impeachment drawn by the Judiciary Committee of the House. Republicans made this a bipartisan enterprise. There was a unanimous vote of the Senate of the United States to undertake the Watergate Committee investigation. And then it was a certain thing after those Republicans voted for the articles in the, in the committee that the full House, including the Republicans, would vote to impeach Nixon. But Nixon still believed that he would be acquitted by the Senate, just as Donald Trump has been acquitted twice by the Senate for even more grievous things in some regards than Richard Nixon ever did. And so Baron Goldwater took out for Woodward and me long after the ham radio, well, 12 years, no, it's 15 years after the ham radio experience, pulled out the diary, was sitting there in his apartment, we are, and he's drinking a scotch, reading from the diary. What Goldwater did is he got together with the leaders of the Republican Party in the Senate and the House leader, uh, Bob Michael at the time, and decided to go to the White House and see Nixon and deliver him a message. They went, they sat across, Goldwater's reading this to us, He's, they sat across from Nixon at a table, and Nixon said, Barry, tell me how many votes I have in the Senate for acquittal in an impeachment trial. And Nixon fully expected that Goldwater, the one that he would be acquitted, and that Goldwater would tell him there'd be no problem, that there would never be two-thirds of the Senate that would vote to convict Richard Nixon. And Barry, how many votes do I have in the Senate? Nixon said to Goldwater. Goldwater looked at him in the eye and said, Mr. President, right now you might have four or six votes and you will never have mine. And at that moment, Nixon knew he was through. And two days later, announced his resignation. In the New York Times' review of your book, they say it's a, it's a eulogy for the newspaper business. And, you know, in the last 15 years, 25% of all newspapers that were once published in the United States have closed. Do you agree? In the last is, how many years, Victoria? In the last 15 years, more than uh, almost 25% of newspapers that were once published in the United States have closed. Do you agree? Is, is the newspaper business dead? Well, first of all, in terms of printed newspapers, that's, that's one question. But really, it's the news organizations that are dead for the most part. It's not just about newspapers themselves, which have been killed because of the, of the internet in terms of their production, but it's the news organizations. And really this started before 15 years ago. And there's a myth in fact, that really it's just the internet that is responsible for killing newspapers. It started before then, it started in the late 1980s and through the 1990s as rapacious chains, especially Gannett, others, not Ritter, a good number of chains came in and started buying up small and large city newspapers that had been the fabric of their community, holding the social fabric of the community in many regards together. Great newspapers, great local newspapers. And Gannett especially came into these towns, stripped these papers of their staff to save money, made these papers a shadow of their former selves that no longer covered with great reporters, the doings, the commercial enterprises of the city, the civic associations, the community 
barbecues even. This amazing thing that we had in this country of newspapers in every town and city started to go under because these chains bought up the papers, stripped them of the reporters, left only a few reporters. They became totally these papers advertising vehicles. And then often Gannett especially would enter into a, if it was a two newspaper town or city, they would enter into an operating agreement with the other newspaper and eventually strip that newspaper down to nothing. So at the end of the century, believe it or not, the average profit for newspapers in this country was 18 or 19%. That's an astonishingly high rate of return. Why was it that high? Because there were no reporters, to be, very few reporters to be paid compared to what, what it had been before. It had raised the profit margin of newspapers. Then the internet came and started to further strangulate and kill newspapers. But what is the result of the death of these news organizations? And where is that 25% loss? It's in the small towns, particularly in smaller cities. I went from the Washington Star before I went to the Post to, to Elizabeth, New Jersey, to work for a year at a paper with a circulation of 50,000. And uh, that paper no longer exists for, for, for the same, same reasons. So the internet ultimately resulted in the death of many, many newspapers. But the result of all this has been that the social fabric of this country has been further ripped asunder because what held the common interests of a town together and what was the debating place for local issues? What people knew about what went on in the other side of their town? They knew from newspapers. Certainly they never knew it and still don't know it from local television news, which is a disgrace and has been for 50 years, 60 years in every market in America practically. There are a few exceptions, often in college towns where the radio station is television station is, is run by, by a college or university. But the social federal, look, you need a newspaper, you need a news organization that is giving you the best obtainable version of the truth, back to that phrase, about what's going on around you. Nobody, I always ask, when I give speeches, I've done it for years, I've said in my speeches, ask the audience, how many people here believe that your local television news at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, six in the evening, is a reflection of the reality of your community? No one ever raises their hands. Let me just ask one follow-up question, which is, is that a fair number of people are pointing to philanthropic billionaires as the, uh, as the answer to the ailing newspaper business. Your former employer is owned by, owned by one of said philanthropic billionaires, I suppose. Is that the wave of the future? Do you see that as potentially being the, um, the saving grace for the newspaper business? I think also we need to talk about the news business, not the newspaper business, because the dominant means of transmission of news is no longer the paper itself. And one of the things that's very encouraging, though, in these towns and cities are alternative newspapers that still exist as weeklies or have sprung up uh, in lots of cities. At least there you have some element of covering what's going on locally. Look, I think any funding 
of news organizations to do real reporting, whether it's nonprofit foundations or whether it's billionaires, as long as those foundations and billionaires keep their fingers off the notion of the best obtainable version of the truth and whatever one might say about Jeff Bezos, whatever side of the argument someone is on about the way he runs the companies that he owns and, and uh, Amazon, et cetera, he has kept his hands off of the editorial operations of the Washington Post. And indeed, under his ownership, the paper has thrived. And when Marty Baron was the editor there, the paper had a new kind of rebirth almost under Jeff Bezos's ownership. So do I have a problem with, with billionaires coming in to buy newspapers? I have the following problem. It's part of the plutocracy of our country. And one of the things we didn't talk about today is we have no longer the meritocracy that enabled me to do what I did at the Washington Star. We have a plutocracy, you know, meaning uh, here was this kid that could get this job and it was merit that enabled me to do the things that I could do. Today, we've obliterated the meritocracy of the post-war post America. We have hundreds of thousands of young people living in the base before pandemic, living in the basement of their houses with their parents at the age of 23 and 24 and 25, saddled by huge student debt. Who ever heard of student debt in the greatest democracy in, in the history of the world? And now we have kids that, that are saddled with student debt because they wanted to get a good education. It's insane. And it goes to this whole plutocratic notion. So, Although you're living proof that one doesn't need a good education to succeed. No, in life, no, no. But, but, but back to the idea, though, though, of should a billionaire own? Look, I accept the fact that we are a plutocracy. I hate it. And we need to do more reporting on the effects of plutocratic life. It's a subject we really need to address. But if a billionaire wants to buy a great news organization or a good news organization and keep it in business as long, and incidentally, usually when a billionaire puts his finger into the editorial process too much, as happened at the Los Angeles Times, for instance, the reporters yell like hell. And, and something happens that usually doesn't work out too well when a billionaire tries to interfere in the, in the reporting process. So look, we have today some of the greatest, and, and a lot of it, but Michael, I'm interested in what you think about this. Look, you are one of the premier investigative reporters of our time. Let's, everybody, let's acknowledge this. <laughs> I want to know what you think. You'll get some I pushback, think I think, I think uh, from I both think my co-hosts and listeners, but go ahead. <laughs> right. I think that we are in, in some ways, there is great investigative reporting in quantity being done all over the world and in this country. Look at what's happening, has happened in Russia, where investigative reporters keep going even after their colleagues have been shot to death because of what goes on there. Look at ProPublica, look at the number of non look at the Panama Papers, look at the number of nonprofits that are funding investigative reporting. I'm interested what you think about this. Well, I mean, I think that in some ways, I think that 
that which makes us want to do investigative uh, reporting is is universal and will transcend whatever the medium is. There's a desire to get that best observable uh, version of the truth out there, and whether it's you know on social media or blogs or you know you know nonprofits uh, or you know whatever is left of the newspaper business, um, there will always be a desire to do it. But the decline of daily newspapers in particular is a loss. Look, I want to just close out with um, my own star experiences because it was one reason I could relate so much to this book. And I think you'll relate to this. Like like you, I started out at the Washington Star working in that same Southeast uh, Washington headquarters where you were just across from, you know, down by Capitol Hill. And I have to say, two of my most exhilarating triumphs in journalism were at the Washington Star. So I want to relate to them. One is, I when I start there, I am assigned to Prince George's County government, right? I'm going out to Upper Marlboro every day. The Prince George's County executive at the time was Larry Hogan, father of the current governor. And I discover that he is pushing a land deal, trying to get the WSSC to buy a chunk of land. The Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission. Thank you. I remember that at the age of 77. All right. Thank you. Okay. And I will always remember it because I discover that uh, Hogan is trying to get the WSSC to buy a chunk of land for a wastewater treatment plant that was owned by one of his main campaign backers, largest financial backer. His wife, who was a lawyer, was representing this guy, and Hogan was trying to get basically a windfall for his biggest campaign backer. So I write this story up. Uh, the star, uh, the Dennis Stern is the Metro editor. He loves it. He gets it on the front page. It's a three-banner headline, Hogan pushing sleazy land deal. And that's great. But the key test, the key test is, would the Post chase it? Because you weren't validated with a star scoop until the hated rival Washington Post was forced to chase your story, which they rarely did, by the way. That was something they did not want to uh, acknowledge. They had been beaten on a story. So that night, I'm at the tune-in at the bar with a bunch of my buddies, one of whom was my future colleague, Howard Feynman, and waiting for the bulldog edition of The Post to come in to the tune-in, a bar on Capitol Hill. It comes in around 11 o'clock, plopped on the bar. I look at, and there on the front page, on the front page, The Post has chased my scoop with three bylines, and in the first paragraph, it says, this was first reported by the Washington Star. It was... I think to this day, my single most exhilarating moment in uh, in journalism, and it led to my second triumph, which is comes shortly thereafter. There was a competition every year among the Maryland reporters who was going to get to cover the state legislature in Annapolis for its three-month session that would begin every January. And the competition that year was between myself, the Prince George's County reporter, and a Montgomery County reporter by the name of Maureen Dowd. And who was going to get that coveted 
legislative assignment. Thanks, I think, to my Larry Hogan scoop. I got it. My second big triumph over Maureen Dowd. She didn't talk to me for about a year, but we eventually yeah. made up. But anyway, uh, it was a lesson, I think, in, you know, one of the things, the romance of the newspaper industry is competition, getting it first, getting the scoop. And, um, you know, I will always what remember. Years did you cover this, what years did you cover in that? That would have been, uh, well, I covered the State House in 80 and 81, 1980 and 81. Yeah. On the day of the White House, uh, the day of the Watergate break-in, I was the chief Virginia reporter covering the legislature <laughs> in Richmond. Okay. Who was the governor at the time? Was it Mills Godwin? No, it was Linwood Holton. Linwood Holton, good a Republican. Republican. Right. And the story I was writing on the day of the, of the, the Watergate break-in that I didn't think was quite as interesting as all the commotion on the, on the city desk about this break-in at the Democratic headquarters, in which I put aside the story I was working on and told the city editor, hey, hey let, let, let me make some checks on what happened at the Watergate last night. The story I was writing was about the candidacy of a truly great man to succeed Glenwood Holton as governor, and that was Henry Howe, the lieutenant governor, mm -hmm. a, a progressive of amazing stature, and he almost won. Great man. But that was the last day I covered Virginia. Memorialized in a book by Garrett Epps. The question that I had for you, Carl, is you were talking before about the kind of vicissitudes of, of the news business. Your kid followed in your footsteps, right? Jacob, right? Jacob is, is a great reporter at the New York Times for the style uh, section of the New York Times. He just did uh, a tr tr tremendous uh, profile of Ron Perlman, which he, I read. Absolutely. <laughs> Terrific and, and he piece. Actually, he also wrote, uh, day before yesterday, uh, with another reporter, a great obituary on Andre Leon Talley. He's a wonderful reporter, a great writer, terrific reporter. I'm, I'm a lucky dad. Uh, Jacob is at the New York Times, and Max, who's 15 months younger than Jacob, is a great musician. He's a guitar player, and he is a guitar player for both Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. Wow, that wow. I do not know. I, I know wow. Jacob. So, so one is at the Times, and one is at Span in Spandex playing stadiums with 80,000 people. All right, very quickly, just to, the book is The Shad Treatment. It's a novel That's about right. Virginia politics. Absolutely. And yeah. Henry Howell, there's a Henry Howell character who's the, who's the star. You want to, you want to explain yeah. what The Shad Treatment is? Shad Treatment is an annual uh, fest. Quiet Shad. Yeah, in Virginia, where hundreds of Virginia politicos go and uh, booze it up and uh, eat a lot of shad uh, every year. Right. Anyway, I don't know if it still goes on, but it was a big deal. I forgot about then. that. That is a great book, too. Yeah. Last question, Clyde. No, no. My, my question was, I'm just curious what you, I get this question from time to time from kids who are in college and are trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And sometimes they ask me about journalism and reporting. And I'm just curious, what is your advice uh, to young people who want to get into the business? What do you tell someone they, they, they're not going to be able to replicate the experience that Carl Bernstein had. That's gone. But what should they do? First thing is get your foot in the door. Be, be a, whatever the equivalent of a copy boy is. Get into the place and go to work there. Work at the most menial of newsroom jobs. Because once you're there, you've got the opportunity. And, and kids still have an opportunity if they're in the building. 
Uh, and that's something you can, you can do in this country in many kinds of jobs. It, it, once you're there, you, you've, got, you, you've got a real chance to make it on your merits. But then start learning about this idea of the best obtainable version of truth and how you go about getting it. And it's about the shoe leather. That look, we have the internet, we have Google, we have Wikipedia. All of these things are great tools that, for instance, I didn't have it to star and Woodward and I didn't have in Watergate and would have saved us a hell of a lot of time using old phone directories with crisscross entries, <laughs> crisscross directories where you found where someone lived by looking it up in this big volume with green pages. You can get it in a second by, by going to Bin Verified online. Saves time. It also is being used by thousands of reporters as an excuse not to get out of the office, not to do the footwork, not to do this perseverant thing that Iskoff, that yourself, that we all learned is the first thing. Source after source after source. Don't see them in their offices where the boss is there and is going to put pressure on them. See them in their homes. See them for lunch. Get away from the office. Get out of the office. Knock on doors. It ain't rocket science either. I mean, unless one of you is studying. I'm just glad you didn't say go out and get yourself a Harvard law degree. <laughs> that's right. And, but, but let me say, let me go from this. Let's end this on the Shad treatment. Because the Shad treatment is about politics in Virginia. And one of the people that I met in my first days at the Star, and there's a lot in this book about her, who next to Sid Epstein is my other great mentor at the Star, is Mary Lou Werner. Mary Lou Werner became a reporter in 1944 at the Star when the men went to war. A lot of women became reporters at the Star who took their place. And Mary Lou Werner was one of my predecessors as the chief Virginia reporter. And the year that I came to the Star, she had won the Pulitzer Prize for her coverage of massive resistance to desegregation in Virginia. And what I learned an awful lot, she gave me the other assignments. She and Sid Epstein gave me my assignments. And I would come back with my story and Mary Lou Werner would sit down with me and tell me what was wrong with it or where I could do better, just as Sid Epstein did. So I had these teachers, but they had also, Mary Lou Werner had covered civil rights and she didn't cover them as neutral either. And she too, both Sid Epstein and Mary Lou Werner were dropouts, <laughs> Mary Lou Werner from, uh, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the kind of reporting that they did, demanded, and passed on to others like me. And it seems to me that, that that's the lesson of all of this. And that's what this book is about, Chasing History, a kid in the newsroom. And it is a great read. It is a, a great uh, peon to the uh, romance of journalism, something uh, we are all uh, infected by. Uh, Carl Bernstein, thanks a lot. A great discussion and great book. It's great to be with you, and let's be in touch. Mm -hmm.